It's clobbering time. Join us as we take a look at Essential Marvel 2-in-1 Volume 2 starring The Thing. Then it's time to travel to a time long, long ago and a galaxy far, far away as we look at Star Wars Legends, the original Marvel Years Volume 1. And then Miss Marvel finds herself in new perils in Miss Marvel Volume 4 Monster Mash straight ahead. Welcome to the Classy Comics Podcast, where we search for the best comics in the universe. From Boise, Idaho, here is your host, Adam Graham. Long-time listeners know I love a team-up book, as I'm a really big fan of Batman Brave and the Bold comics from the Silver and Bronze Age. I also love the Marvel 2-in-1 and Marvel team-up books featuring The Thing and Spider-Man Uh, respectively. When the Fantastic Four were created, it was the thought of a lot of people that Johnny Storm would become the character that people uh, most loved, the handsome Human Torch. Instead, I think it's safe to say that the character that uh, is most related to is The Thing, Benjamin Graham, and he was given his own ongoing series in Marvel 2-in-1 where each month he either teamed up with or fought or sometimes did both with a uh, player from the Marvel Universe. Oftentimes not a very uh, big-time player. I think this volume has a good selection of both well-known and obscure heroes, so we'll go ahead and get into uh, talking about this. As the book begins, this is uh, at a time when Marv Wolfman uh, is writing the series and uh, and the way that he uh, tended to structure things was that he made the team ups uh, bigger as they went along. So we might start out with one hero teaming up with uh, Ben, but then we would get a multi part story where in each new part we got another hero and the old ones didn't go away so this i, I think really created a fun dynamic essential marvel 2 in 1 volume 2 collects issues 26 to 52 uh issue 26 begins with uh, nick fury summoning the thing to uh, the helicarrier because they've gotten word that two supervillains the fixer and mentallo uh, have a plan to kidnap the thing, and they're trying to avoid that, but uh, nevertheless, the two supervillains, uh, using the Fixer's uh, abilities with electronics and McTallow's ability with mind control, are able to kidnap the thing and put him under their control. And the plot is that they need the thing to gain access to Reed Richards' lab so they can get uh, a Deathlock, the Demolisher, out of an alternate dimension. And they succeed that far. And uh, their plan uh, develops that they want to assassinate the incoming president, uh, Jimmy Carter. 
Now, they don't have any political grudge against Carter, and really their reason for choosing to assassinate Carter is just to prove that they've got control of Deathlock and to prove that uh, what Deathlock can do. So it's a really convoluted plot when the assassination of the President of the United States is just a means to an end. I'll also say that this story has just got a ton of expositional dialogue. You know, the comics at this point were 17 pages long, and so many pages in this story were taken up by uh, Mentallo and Fixer explaining what they were going to do. And actually, in the second issue, uh, they go to Washington, D.C., and uh, the whole Fantastic Four goes along with Nick Fury. And so I was like, at this point, this isn't really a Thing comic anymore. This is a Fantastic Four comic because you've got all uh, four of them there. It's not bad, and they do have a surprising ending for how they were uh, trying to protect President Carter. Okay, so at the end of that story, they end up getting... Um, Deathlock, uh, who needs uh, treatment, and Ben has to go to London to find a scientist who can help. And his girlfriend, Alicia Masters, who's blind, wants to go along because she's always wanted to visit London. And so he f- flies a uh, Fantastic Four plane across the ocean, and uh, Meanwhile, Namor, the Submariner, is under the ocean. And he's attacked by one of his old enemies, Piranha. And he dispatches him, and, you know, as he's just, he's just finished killing one of his enemies who attacked him. And he looks up and sees Ben Grimm flying overhead and says, hey, I think I'll go and say hi to Ben Grimm. Last time they'd met, uh, Namor had been under Doctor Doom's uh, control, but they fought. And Namor uh, waves, and uh, Ben Grimm is uh, kind of talking to him, and then the uh, Piranha uh, is able to take Namor down, and Ben is going to fly on to London initially just because he's got Alicia there with him and doesn't want to put her at risk, but she pleads uh, for Ben to go and uh, help Namor out. And so he does. And it turns out that the piranha that Namor killed was actually the brother of another piranha. I'm not sure was which is the original one that Namor fought. But they end up trying to create a situation where uh, Namor and the Thing have to fight one another. I think it's a pretty good issue. Some action. A few little twists. I mean, particularly when you've got a 17-page uh, story. This one's just a nice little one and done. Then we get to issues 29 to 33. And this is actually a story that's really important uh, because uh, it does not because of what it means for the thing, but because of what it means for another character, uh, and that's uh, Spider Woman. She was introduced back in Marvel Spotlight number 32, and she was under the control of Hydra. However, she came to some realizations about herself as she fought Nick Fury. But that wasn't really followed up until this uh, particular uh, series. That was one thing that Marvel used the 2-in-1 series for, was to take care of some 
plot threads that were left uh, dangling in other books. Like if a character was in a series of stories, but the book got canceled, uh, they might be given an appearance in Marvel 2-in-1 to wrap everything up. Or they might be given a a chance to get a wider uh, exposure. Marvel Team-Up did that occasionally, uh, but not quite as much. Uh, This one, I think, was pretty good because... We get to see uh, quite a few heroes uh, make appearances. And we get to see an issue where uh, Ben fights uh, Spider-Woman. And then uh, she is able to uh, overcome uh, Hydra's control. And they end up fighting together as uh, they kidnap Alicia and turn her into a monster. Which provides some great conflict for Ben Graham. There's also a robbery that is going on through the first uh, four issues. And uh, really gets paid off in the fifth issue uh, with uh, the crossover with uh, Mordrad who is able to help the Thing and Spider-Woman defeat the mystical foe, and then takes uh, Spider-Woman off to teach her about herself, uh, because apparently she was under the impression that she wasn't human for some reason. While Alicia goes back to uh, New York after issue 33, uh, Ben stays in London for issue 34, as Deathlock is handed over to S.H.I.E.L.D., after being stabilized by the doctor that uh, they had saved uh, from Hydra in the first issue, Ben is drawn into another science thing, where an unknown creature has been found to be encased in a large stone. And it's been argued against letting that creature out. However, it is declared that uh, it is our duty to reanimate the life form inside. And uh, you really think the story is headed for a pretty simple monster story when they go ahead and do their quote-unquote duty and there's this really monstrous creature inside. But it actually turns out while the creature looks hideous, he's actually not. Uh, The thing and uh, Kyle Richmond, who operates under the identity of Nighthawk, go into action. And we see throughout that it's benign, a little confused by what's going on, and ends up dying uh, trying to save the daughter of one of the men who had been uh, coming after him and tormenting him. It's a good, solid, classic sci-fi story, uh, very well told. Uh, Issues 35 and 36 is an example of what I had uh, talked about before. Uh, There was... uh, comic series called Skull the Slayer. It was a series written by Wolfman that uh, was about an adventurer who uh, plane went through a time warp in the Bermuda Triangle and he and his three friends ended up stuck there. The story ran for eight issues and then was cancelled and so we get this two-issue story which essentially serves to resolve things. As Ben Grimm is sent to fly into the Bermuda Triangle to investigate some strange goings-on, he gets caught in the time warp and is able to get them back. But they are pursued by an evil wizard on a pterodactyl from this uh, alternate universe. Uh, this is just a fun story. You have the thing and you have dinosaurs. You have Mr. Fantastic um, 
showing up at the end. So this is a really uh, good, enjoyable uh, story. Then we have Annual Number 2, which was actually written by Jim Shooter. Uh, who, you know, wrote a lot of the uh, cosmic stuff, uh, for both Marvel and for DC. And, uh, uh essentially it begins with Spider-Man being summoned in a dream by Moondragon to rescue the Avengers in space. And so Spidey goes to the Fantastic Four headquarters since they're the people that he best knows who have a spaceship. And so the thing believes him, and they fly off into space and investigate. And the the Avengers are trapped, and Thanos plans uh, to cause the sun to go supernova. So it's up to Spider-Man and the thing, and honestly, it's a bit more Spider-Man, to stop Thanos and to save the world. It's a good, uh, rollicking comic adventure. I really enjoyed this one. Um, issues 37 to 39, uh, is set at a time when the Fantastic Four had actually disbanded, uh, starting issues 191 and 192, though that happened, uh, several times throughout the run of the comics where something would happen and they would disband. And Ben just all of a sudden starts going, uh, on rampages where he'll just, you know, uh, destroy stuff. And uh, he is taken to court uh, and charged with destruction of property. Now, Ben has tended to do some uh, heavy property destruction, uh, but it was something that uh, Mr. Fantastic uh, always paid for out of his inventions. But with uh, the Fantastic Four no more, he is really in a tight bind and facing trial, and he gets locked away in jail. Of course, he's defended by Matt Murdock. And as Daredevil, uh, Murdock notices that there is a sound that precedes each one of Ben's rampages. Of course, there's an evil mastermind behind it. Turns out to be the mad thinker who needs Ben another plan and you get a story that also throws in a visit from uh, Vision and Yellow Jacket. Uh, this story is a lot of fun. I know I've said that about quite a few of these, but there's a nice twist and just a little bit of a surprise given how much the mad thinker thinks he's able to account for everything. The Wolfman era writing this book ended with issue 39. And what we have for the rest of the book is a multiple writers uh, situation where who was writing Marvel 2-in-1 varied from month to month. And writers would write a one or at most two-part story. And then someone else would come on and take a, take a try at it. Issues 40 and 41 uh, essentially has the plot that there are prominent black people who are disappearing uh, from uh, New York City. In issue 40, Ben teams up uh, with uh, T'Challa. Um, and uh, actually, it's revealed that uh, one of the means of this uh, kidnapping is a... Uh, a weird type of vampire that still uh, follows uh, typical vampire rules. Issue 40 ends on a pretty good uh, cliffhanger as after uh, Ben and uh, T'Challa have separated, then T'Challa is kidnapped. And in issue 41, 
brother Voodoo takes over helping Ben out. This is another one of those stories where even though it's a two-parter, so you have 34 pages to tell the story in, there's just a lot of exposition in terms of the villain's overall plot, which is uh, convoluted to say the least. Then we get on to issues 42 and 43, which is a uh, Project Pegasus story. Early in uh, Marvel uh, 2 and 1, Ben had become guardian of a very strong young man with a mind of a child. And so finally he's going back to check on him, and he hasn't heard anything, so he just charges in there. You know, no questions, just uh, clobbering. Uh, but he meets Captain America, who calms him down, and he's checking out Project uh, Pegasus because they have guardianship of uh, the Cosmic Cube. And then it's stolen. It's taken by a scientist who's named Victorious and is allied with Jude, the Anthropic Man, and a death cult. Uh, the art in this is actually really good uh, by uh, John Byrne. Uh, the story has them traveling, uh, after the, uh, Cosmic Cube is stolen, uh, to, uh, Florida, where the Entropic, uh, man is, and this whole death cult. And of course, if you are a Marvel comic, it's the 1970s, and you're in Florida, then Man-Thing shows up. And it's Man-Thing, ultimately, that, uh, provides the resolution to this. I always have mixed feelings on that, because... Essentially, Man-Thing is a, a mindless creature. That's the way they were writing him back then. But nevertheless, he ends up being what uh, resolves the plot. So it kind of comes off as a deus ex machina. But in their defense, he was at least on the cover for issue 43 as the uh, guest star. Um, issue 44 uh, t- uh, uh, finds Ben telling a story to kids uh, about how Hercules uh, came by and picked him up and took him on a ride to Olympus to fight monsters. And he's just, you know, and it's about him telling the story to the kids. Now, technically, there aren't any indications that he's lying, and Hercules is actually a part of the Marvel Universe, uh, but... Uh, it could be a tall tale. The most cute part in the story is he's talking about this and a kid actually asked him, did you die? Uh, which it's like, uh, how do you think I would be here? Um, uh, then we get to issue 45 where uh, Ben is out. He's dressed to the nines. And then a 1920s gangster uh, car comes by, attacks, and hits him with a ton of bullets, which just annoys him. And uh, this actually goes back to someone who's a scroll and part of the scroll empire. And at this point, Captain uh, Marvel gets involved because, you know, he's Kree. Um, and there are some fun elements in this, like this scroll has taken on this uh, 1920s gangster persona and set up and all of these trappings. 
But it's a one-issue story that goes 17 pages long, goes into some deep continuity, and is just a little bit uh, more convoluted than it really needs to be. So then uh, we have uh, issue 46 is a fun one, uh, where uh, the Thing gets jealous because the Incredible Hulk has a TV show. Now, of course, in real life, the Incredible Hulk really did have a TV show. So he goes to Hollywood to get his own TV show. At the same time, uh, Incredible Hulk uh, is going through a town and turns back into Bruce Banner. And when Banner sees the TV show, he feels like they're making a soap opera that is trying to capitalize on his pain, which in turn makes him angry, which turns him into the Hulk, and the Hulk uh, determines that the show is making fun of him. And so the two get into a fight. It's a nice uh, idea, and I think it. I like that it plays on the TV show and uses that as a plot. All right, issues 47 and 48, it's Ben's birthday. The Yancey Street Gang sends a card uh, that uh, tells uh, Ben to stay away, which he takes as a hint for him to show up. And he finds that uh, the Yancey Street Gang have been pressed into service for the Machine Smith, a villain who puts uh, Ben under his control. And it's up to the new hottest uh, superhero in the Marvel Universe, the Jack of Hearts, to save the day. I actually had no idea who the Jack of Hearts was. And this is one of those comics meant to popularize the character that I don't think quite worked out. Um, issue 49 is an interesting one. It's written by Mary Jo Duffy, who essentially uh, writes the story as an homage to Dark Shadows, uh, with uh, Doctor Strange showing up to help uh, Ben as he's in the town of Crawlingswood. Issue 50 finds... Uh, uh, Reed Richards trying to help uh, cure the thing and informing him that because he's changed over time uh, that Reed had developed a uh, cure, but it really would have only worked on Ben close to the beginning. And so he decides to travel back in time and to use Reed's formula to cure his past self so that he won't be the thing anymore. The art and story are by John Byrne, and there's some nice contrast between the thing as he was originally drawn and written and how he had become known by uh, 1979. But of course, the effort is doomed uh, for obvious uh, time travel reasons. Uh, issue 51 is an interesting one, and uh, essentially it begins with uh, Nick Fury and Ben going to Avengers Mansion uh, to play poker. And this establishes a tradition that's referenced a few times in the Marvel Universe of Ben being involved in a poker game with other superheroes. And uh, they actually have some heroes there who were not quite as common or well-known, including uh, Miss Marvel. And... Um, Ben it was kind of fuming between hands at Jarvis. Uh, 
the butler says saying just because you got more reserve players than the NFL uh, don't mean you can ring him in on our poker game too. And he's a little upset about Miss Marvel being included in the poker game because uh, she's a woman and that's not typically something that uh, he thought would be done. Though I think his greater objection, which he does state, is that Miss Marvel did the one thing that is the most egregious thing for a woman to do in the poker uh, hand. She won. And so he was, I guess, feeling a bit uh, sore loserish on that. The art in the story by Frank Miller is great. I'm not usually a huge fan of his stuff, but I think that just some fantastic pencils, uh, particularly of the poker game itself. It was just uh, really gorgeously drawn. Of course, some villains show up and there's a team up, but I really like this story more for the character insights and the uh, villain appearance was just a lot more uh, obligatory. Finally, we have issue 52 where... A man is killed right in front of Ben. And Moon Knight, uh, who was another uh, new superhero at the time, becomes involved. And um, the thing insists that he can handle it himself. And he gets some lead, I'm not quite sure what, that leads him to uh, Den of Villainy. And he takes a cab, and I'm pretty sure, because Moon Knight was a master of disguise, that it was Moon Knight who was actually driving the cab. Thus also, while Moon Knight quickly shows up. And I think this is a good story. Uh, the villain is Crossfire, uh, who is known to Moon Knight from his days in the CIA. And unlike with the Jack of Hearts, this works because Moon Knight, I think, is a pretty interesting character here. And so I enjoyed that. And I definitely do mean to read some Moon Knight one of these days. Uh, overall, I really enjoyed reading through this book a lot. As I've said, there are some uh, stories and issues I liked better than others. But uh, I really do love this team-up format, and you get to read a lot of good stuff. If you do get the essential Marvel 2-in-1, it's in black and white. They have begun to do them in color with the Masterworks, but they are only up to Volume 3 in the Masterworks, which means you can only read like up to Issue 36. But at any rate, we'll definitely give this a rating of Classy. All right, well, now we turn to Star Wars Legends, the original Marvel Years, uh, Volume 1, the Epic Collection. Uh, and I should offer some explanation here. Um, obviously, there has been a ton of Star Wars spinoff media, and I have consumed really none of it, other than uh, Princess Leia uh, comics that I read a few years back. I decided I'd like to check out the original uh, Marvel run on uh, Star Wars. Currently, Marvel has the license to Star Wars once again, and will probably keep it as long as that franchise is valuable, given that Disney owns both Star Wars and Marvel now. The comics are part of the Star Wars Expanded Universe which Disney actually declared non-canon when they took over the franchise. For a lot of reasons. Mainly because they didn't want their writers to be bound by what other writers had uh, written. And there were so many stories and so many contradictory stories that it just, you know, made sense for that reason. 
uh, and so I get that. I also get fans who really, really hate that because they invested a lot of energy into that. I wanted to read the original Marvel years, though, to kind of capture the original uh, spirit of adventure that came with the uh, first uh, few movies. When I hear descriptions about stories written afterwards, it seems like they're trying to fill in little continuity gaps and really kind of manage, you know, a bunch of different uh, aspects of the uh, stories, which can be interesting. Uh, but for me, it's like I want to see the characters I like having adventures. And so this was where I wanted to start out with. So uh, the original Marvel Years Volume 1 collects the first 23 issues of the Star Wars comic. Uh, and then there are some other uh, comics. Uh, it collects uh, some British comic strips uh, featuring Star Wars. And uh, we'll talk about those in a bit. The first six issues are the uh, adaptation of the first movie, uh, Star Wars A New Hope. For the sake of this review, I'm not going to recap the entire plot of New Hope. I will assume that uh, you have watched A New Hope. If you have not watched A New Hope, then stop this podcast and any other entertainment you're consuming and go and watch that immediately. Because that is just an absolutely great movie. It's one of the essential films. Uh, So... Uh, it's going to be as read that you've uh, seen the uh, movie and uh, understand the general plot. I wasn't actually too keen on this adaptation. Uh, I, I didn't think it was bad, but uh, it, it adds like a few things uh, that you would not have gotten with the theatrical uh, release. You know, there is that big debate, you know, who shot first? You know, that's come out since the uh, extra editions have added the scene of uh, Han uh, shooting the uh, bounty hunter who came for him in the uh, cantina. The comic strip pretty much makes that plain, that Han shot only. There was no first. He was the one who shot. We also meet Jabba the Hutt, who looks absolutely nothing like the character we met in Return of the Jedi. In addition, unlike the end of the movie, the end of the book, uh, in terms of the adaptation, shows uh, Chewie getting a medal. We're just told that he'll get the medal later because he's too tall for Princess Leia to reach. Which is silly because... Throughout history, that's part of the reason why people tend to bow or kneel for uh, monarchs. And that would have made all kinds of more sense. But anyway, that's what you have in the comic. Uh, you do have some lines and some moments that are not as epic. Um, I think, for example, some of the final lines used during the attack in the Death Star uh, that ended up... Um, in the movie, but not in the comic uh, book, which was based on a late draft of the script. Um, it was de- the art uh, by Howard Shaken, who, according to reports, was someone that George Lucas personally chose. 
uh, really was off at a few points. Um, like there are some uh, facial expressions, like when uh, Luke tells Hans uh, that he doesn't have a chance with the princess. Uh, just the way that he looks kind of makes him look a little uh, petty. And uh, so this is a decent enough adaptation of a really great movie that just doesn't live up to its source material entirely. Not horrible, but not all that great. Uh, issues number 7 through 10 uh, it, uh, have a plot art where essentially after the events of New Hope, uh, Han and Chewie uh, leave so that Han can settle his debts with Jabba the Hutt. But before they go there, they are attacked by pirates. Um, and uh, the, uh, pi- the uh, pirates take uh, the treasure that Princess Leia had given him, which is actually a nice plot hole they found the whole Star Wars franchise. And they end up going to a planet where peasants are being attacked by bandits. And so uh, Hans uh, forms a team of spacers uh, to fight uh, the uh, uh, to, to fight the bandits, and they'll get paid for their efforts. And so they go out there as these mercenaries to face down the bandits. And, uh, they, they fight with the, uh, bandits and, uh, the shaman of the village, uh, is able to, uh, call forth this giant beast to fight the bandits where things are not going like quite as well with, uh, uh, Han's team fighting them. And this giant animal comes forth. So they have to deal with that. And, uh, Roy Thomas had written this, uh, uh, this plot arc and he had written the Star Wars adaptation and this is where he departed uh, and he they have an introduction for him that he wrote to uh, the omnibus edition of this where uh, essentially he just got tired of uh, some of the difficulties that he was having with uh, George Lucas because one of the characters that he had created for this uh, story was Jackson, who was a giant seven foot tall green meat eating rabbit uh, creature. And uh, George Lucas did not care for that character at all. And Roy Thomas decided, you know, I think I'll uh, keep writing Conan because the big benefit with Conan is that his creator has died years ago. And uh, Star Wars had become such a big deal at Marvel, and it would actually keep Marvel afloat during some rough years ahead. So he departed, and Archie Goodwin took over the strip. And really, Archie Goodwin just writes this uh, fantastically. Uh, He does the uh, writing for just so many issues ahead, uh, and uh, he is helped in the art department by Carmine uh, Infantino, who was best known for his work for DC and The Flash. And when Carmine Infantino wasn't available, he got uh, help from Walt Simonson. Walt Simonson, who uh, 
would distinguish himself writing and drawing Thor. And their first big uh, arc uh, involves the fact that Luke, uh, in those issues that Roy Thomas was writing, he went off on a scout mission and he disappeared. And then Leia went after him. And when Han is flying away, he runs right into Crimson Jack. Now, Crimson Jack was the pirate who had uh, attacked him previously and taken the treasure. Crimson Jack actually controlled an Imperial destroyer. And uh, he has captured Leia. Uh, Han had a plan to take the ship. But we never find out what that is because Leia is present and that complicates everything. And uh, Crimson Jack wants the location of the Rebels' star system because he figures there's lots of treasure here that he can plunder. Han and Leia put on a scene uh, with Han pretending to be Leia's lover to get her to, to disclose the base, and she pretends to disclose it, but actually discloses the star system that Luke was in. Uh, and uh, Luke, uh, meanwhile, has crash-landed on a planet where technology is being jammed with a sonic jammer, and that's bringing the spaceships down. And he's enlisted by the side that's put up the sonic jammer uh, to fight against the dragon lords, who ride actual sea dragons into battle. And yeah, that is as cool as it sounds. Um, eventually... Uh, Hans, Leia, and Chewbacca escape from Crimson Jack uh, when the ship is disabled. And they go down to the planet's surface, and you just have a, a great bit going on. The whole be resolved. And then after that, it comes down to a battle between Solo and Crimson Jack. It really, you know, uh, just uh, fantastic uh, sp uh, space opera stuff. A lot of fun. Uh, issues uh, 16 is an interesting one because none of the original Star Wars character appears. There is this bounty hunter named Valance who comes across the old man who was in Solo's group uh, talking in his sleep about the dream. And he sets out to find them uh, and he goes after Jackson because Jackson is the most recognizable member of the team. The seven-foot-tall, uh, uh, meat-eating rabbit. Uh, and they capture him and are going to torture him, but another member of the team, Amaza, rescues him. And they team up with the Starkiller Kid uh, to just take down all of Valance's crew. And then, at the end of the story, it's revealed that the reason that uh, Valance was coming after Jackson in the first place was because uh, he thought the Starkiller Kid was Luke. But it wasn't, and so he just uh, heads off. But in the final panel, we get a great reveal about Valance. It's a really interesting story, even though it didn't feature any of the uh, main characters. And I was pleasantly surprised, and I hope I get to another story with Valance in it. Uh, issue 17 is an untold story of Luke Skywalker, where we get to see him uh, when he was uh, growing up on the planet Tatooine. And this one turned out to be pretty good as well. 
it told an interesting story without going overboard and making it hard to believe that Luke would be there when the droid showed up, while still also giving a preview of the type of skills and abilities he would show later on down the road. Then we come to issues 18 through 23. And it begins with Luke going into a trance, um, and uh, they're concerned that he needs medical treatment. And they come across a destroyed uh, ship that had been carrying the proceeds of uh, the uh, wheel, this uh, giant wheel in space uh, casino, where the Empire didn't really have a jurisdiction. Uh, and it was under the command of a former senator named Greystone, who Leia knew was just this really corrupt scoundrel. And they land on the wheel uh, to get away from the Empire, but the Empire is following them, and Greystone uh, sort of begins to cooperate, even as he gets wind of the fact that the Empire has actually been destroying uh, ships, carrying uh, their profits, uh, and uh, trying to frame the rebels so that they can gain some uh, authority and jurisdiction because gamblers who are reluctant about having the empire there might be okay with it if it's what it takes to safeguard them and their winnings. Uh, and it's a really good story. There's some interesting characters. Greystone is a scoundrel. Uh, but he does have some moments, particularly towards the end, that really do give his character a, a little bit of a arc where he's shown to have some redeeming uh, characteristics. Uh, there's some good action, uh, some surprising scenes. Uh, there's, of course, one cover in this where Han is telling Chewie he's got to shoot him. Of course, there are so many similarities between Empire uh, Strikes Back, because at this point, uh, Darth Vader has come looking for Luke and uh, is headed in this direction. So you have uh, you have Vader out searching for Luke and them taking refuge on a uh, on a space station where there is gambling and uh, having to deal with a conniving head of the station. And it's worth noting that Darth Vader began to be included at this point since uh, Roy Thomas had been told he wasn't allowed to use Darth Vader because they still weren't sure what they were going to do with him in the next movie. So kind of indicates where George Lucas's thinking was at. But yeah, this was just a really great six-part arc. Um, and uh, then we get an added treat because Marvel was very big in the UK and they had their own comic magazines and uh, they ran uh, strips that were originally UK exclusives. And so one of those magazines was Pizzazz and they had a nine-part story in Pizzazz which... Uh, uh, issues one through nine, which has Luke and Leia going to visit rebel groups to get them into the rebel alliance. And they get uh, tracked by the Empire and they have to land on a deserted uh, planet where they run into these four children on the planet um, who are 
tied to the planet. Uh, this is not a bad story, but to me, honestly, it reads a bit more Star Trek than Star Wars. Then we get another serialized strip that began in issues 10 through 16 of Pizzazz, which was then canceled and then concluded in the reprint magazine uh, Star Wars Weekly number 60. And Luke and Leia land on an ice world, and they get separated from the droids. And uh, the droids are captured by the snow, uh, snow demons, which were the native inhabitants of the planet. Uh, and they think they're going to meet the rebel group, but it, they quickly figure out that they're not actually rebels, but it's the Empire. And the Empire had uh, moved in and had captured the uh, rebel group, thought they'd killed them all, how they could trick Leia into revealing all of the rebels' secrets. And it's up to the droids and the actual rebels in order to rescue them and to defeat the Empire. And this is just another great swashbuckling story. Despite really only a so-so adaptation of the original movie, I really enjoyed this book. Luke, Han, and Leia, they have the type of adventures that I imagine that they would have had in between the Star Wars uh, movies with a lot of swashbuckling actions. It doesn't quite uh, raise to a cinematic level, but uh, very few things in life do. Uh, this is a lot of action, a lot of fun. I think they did a great job in particular with uh, capturing uh, Leia and just getting the right voice for her, which was really different than most women in comics at the time. So overall, I will give... Uh, Star Wars, uh, Epic Collection, Legends, The Original Marvel Years, Volume 1, a rating of classy. Finally, we have Miss Marvel, Volume 4, Monster Mash. And this one collects issues 18 through 24 of Miss Marvel. And there are two stories in here. The first is Puppets, which lays out a lot of what's going on in this uh, volume. Uh, first, Carol is dealing with some weird stuff. Uh, she turned blue in one of her adventures. She has got an amazing healing factor that's rendered her essentially uh, invulnerable, and she's hearing voices. And she tells Beast about this, who's going to run some additional tests. And she finally makes her peace with Beast uh, over her attack on Rogue in Volume 2. And it's just a really sweet and honest scene. Meanwhile, Anya is back at home and trying to fight crime uh, without her father knowing. And her father's upset. And they fight also over Carol, uh, who her father says that Carol put her in danger. And she insists that Carol saved her life. And I think Anya was closer to the truth. Um, and Miss Marvel battles a female supervillain named Battleaxe, who of course has muscles and a battleaxe and attacks Miss Marvel with it. And there are also, uh, soldiers who attack and Miss Marvel's able to deal with it. And it turns out that they are totally blank. They don't know why they're there or what they're doing. 
Uh, and at the same time, she's got to receive new members to her team to replace those who were lost in the previous adventure, or more accurately uh, put, uh, put out of action. Uh, and the two new members of her team are Machine Man, who was a character created by Jack Kirby in the 70s, uh, though this one slightly uh, revised, and a Sleepwalker. Uh, now, Machine Man is uh, kind of this uh, robot man, but with an attitude and a lot of uh, really quirky sense of humor. The Sleepwalker, Carol doesn't actually meet immediately. She meets Rick Sheridan, who uh, Sleepwalker is tied to. And the Sleepwalker was a character created back in the 1990s. And a really clever concept. The idea of the Sleepwalker is that he is from another dimension. And he only is able to roam and interact with our dimension when Rick Sheridan is asleep. But he is definitely a very handy guy to have around. And this is something I'll give writer Brian Reed props for because I criticized the previous volume for not having interesting characters. And while I don't really see an, uh, other characters that I really connect to emotionally, uh, Machine Man is a fun character, and Sleepwalker is just such an interesting one. So it uh, uh, definitely makes it worthwhile. Uh, the Daily Bugle has gone after her with a photo of her kissing Wonder Man during a battle because apparently the media, I guess, didn't buy into the whole thing. She wasn't necessarily kissing him to kiss him, but in order to save the city. Just don't understand. Plus, they've gotten wind with the stuff that happened with Julia Carpenter. But this is never really dealt with in this uh, book, so we'll kind of leave it there. Really, uh, the title of the story is Puppets, and the one behind it is The Puppet Master. Though he insists he's retired, although he's continuing to do supervillain stuff, and wants to be called just Philip Masters. And it's revealed that he was behind kidnapping the Chilean soldiers, uh, who also staged a raid on a S.H.I.E.L.D. facility and were gunned down in the process. And it's revealed at the end of the first issue in the book that he's kidnapped uh, Anya, and he is running and fighting uh, uh, female uh, metahumans for entertainment. Uh, but he lets Anya go out for, to get something, and for some reason, Anya, unlike everybody else who's just pretty silent, she uh, is able to talk, and she says that uh, the S.H.I.E.L.D. people have to be defeated because they're attacking uh, her master, and uh, so Anya takes on the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, but makes the mistake of knocking uh, out Rick Sheridan, which allows the sleepwalker to come in, and then she pretty much doesn't have a chance. Miss Marvel gets captured by the puppet master, but all of a sudden turns blue and uh, uh, gets out from under his control. And... Uh, then there is a melee as the superhero structure who had been captured by Puppet Master is let loose to stomp the city. Uh, and uh, then the S.H.I.E.L.D. people bring uh, Anya back, hoping to find some uh, treatment, uh, and runs right into the Puppet Master 
and uh, he urges Anya to kill Miss Marvel, and she refuses, saying that she won't kill her uh, Carol, she won't hurt her mother, which uh, kind of hints at the sort of feelings that uh, Anya, whose mother, I believe, is dead, is developing for uh, uh, Carol. And Carol goes back into the puppet master's office, where she discovers that the puppet master has a red button that he planned to use to kill both himself and whoever came after him. And Carol is just furious at what uh, Puppet Master has done. And uh, when she went in, Agent Sum was under the impression that he was going to kill Puppet Master. But instead, she lets Puppet Master kill himself by pressing the button and relying on her healing factor to heal her. She then is lies to her team and says that there was nothing that she could have done. But she knows the truth and feels guilty about it because she views what she did as taking the law into her own hands, even though it was Puppet Master's hand that actually killed him. I think that does say something about her overall morality and sense of responsibility. But while she's contemplating this, uh, the the crew, the monster that she fought in the first volume, burst into her quarters and kidnaps her from the ship. And her team kind of struggles to get together to uh, stage a rescue and even find out where she went. Because after a fight, the crew carried her to Monster Island. And the reason for this is that it, during their fight, uh, Carol absorbed a part of the crew and the crew needs that part back in order to survive and to have their powers and during the course of this rejuvenating process the crew shuts down both of their uh, power sets which is a bad thing because there's a reason why they call it monster island and not only are there monsters there the brood is there and they are planning a new offensive to take over the earth and Miss Marvel's a bit confused by this because she remembers back when she was binary wiping out the brood. And we never really get an answer to how the brood were able to come back, at least not in this book. S.H.I.E.L.D. eventually does come in, but the brood really has the idea that they want to take over the mini-carrier. But at this point, Miss Marvel is rejuvenated, and the brood kind of gives her a reset. It's part of the efforts to restore the brood's own power. And Miss Marvel is transformed back into her binary identity, where she is just uh, incredibly powerful, like a burning sun. And she manages to destroy all of the brood who are on Earth, except for the brood queen, at which point she turns back to Miss Marvel. And then defeating the brood takes just a bit longer. Afterwards, at home, everyone returns um Anya is able to reconcile with her dad, and Carol is left to reflect on herself and her life and what she's had to face. Uh, she uh, confesses to herself that she's got a tendency to either rush into things or run away from them entirely. And she reflects really a lot on her faults, so even though she won the day, she's still a bit down. But at least things are on a good track in terms of her work with Operation Lightning Storm. And then, though, the book ends with S.H.I.E.L.D. Agent Sum meeting with Tony Stark, who informs him that there's 
been a large number of scrolls who have infiltrated the earth. And one of them is part of Operation Lightning Storm. And that agent of the scrolls is Carol Danvers. Well, Miss Marvel not being interrupted by an event is something that couldn't last forever. But a secret invasion is one of the more interesting ones, and we'll see how that plays out. Overall, I like this book uh, particularly a lot better than the last one. Carol does continue to wrestle with her demons and have to face her shortcomings and challenges. But at the same time, there's a lot of fun stuff in this story. Machine Man was good, and so was The Sleepwalker. I think both stories were solid narratives. The book also didn't spend too much time dwelling on uh, side roads that weren't all that interesting, such as Carol's love life or the Daily Bugle thing. And it'll be interesting to see when they get back to those whether they're able to address them in an interesting way. Overall, the book feels like it's headed back in the right direction, so I'll give it a rating of classy. And that leads to a triple classy episode with both Essential Marvel 2-in-1 Volume 2, Star Wars The Original Marvel Years Volume 1, and Miss Marvel Volume 4, all getting ratings of classy. That will do it for now. Join us back here next time. In the meantime, send your comments to ClassyComicsGuy at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at ClassyComicsGuy. And check out the website, ClassyComicsGuy.com. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.